Lauren Hollihan, blundering follower of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Black Knowles Women's Bible Study. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've come to the end of Paul's thank you note to the Philippians. No doubt, he's loaded up this missive with lots of other stuff, but presumably Paul's initial and practical intent was to thank the Philippian church for their support. It had been 10 years since their last gift, and the material revival of their concern was a huge encouragement to him. But nowhere in the letter does Paul actually thank the Philippians. It's true, gratitude and thanks are almost as prevalent as rejoicing in this dispatch, but the thanks is always directed to the Lord. For Paul, everything, every event and emotion, every relationship and reality, even something as seemingly immediate and direct as thank you for the gift is filtered through Christ first. He says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And I can't really get much further than that. I mean, what does that look like to rejoice in the Lord, which Paul has been repeating in every chapter? I know how to rejoice when Carl, my son, sacks a quarterback or when we're awarded a federal grant at work, or, or when I pick the fastest line at Food Lion, which is never. But, but what does it mean to actually rejoice in the Lord? So I have a spirit animal. Um, it's not an uncommon or exotic spirit animal, which might make this more believable because we're so conditioned to think that God's visitations nowadays are super scarce and by that logic encounters with one spirit animal should not exceed more than 1.7 per lifetime. My spirit animal is the great blue heron which for those bent in the direction of spirit animals is an industry standard. Great blue herons are to spirit animals what Google is to search engines. And citing them here near the Eno where I live is not that uncommon. Still, whether it's driving down 85 and one crosses overhead, or one passes through the yard, or glides low over the river, seeing a heron lifts my soul in what seems to be exactly the moment it needed lifting, usually without my knowing that was what was needed, until after the great graceful creature is passed out of view. This past Christmas morning, I awoke to an empty house, glad for the quiet and content with the solitude. This has not always been my feeling about starting holidays alone, and I remember thanking God for how he's brought me along in that. I went out for my customary Christmas morning run, gearing up for the family feast that afternoon. It was a gorgeous, crisp morning. And as I came down Rosa Sharon Road, probably thinking hard about the food prep, Ooh, I should put some of that leftover cream cheese in the mashed potatoes. I approached the super fancy cascading fountain entrance of the River's Edge neighborhood on the right. My mind still very much elsewhere. I got about 15 feet from the fountain and a giant blue heron lifted out of the water and flew right in front of me. It's the closest I've ever been to one, and I was absolutely bowled over, like physically bent over in wonder over its size and power and unspeakable blueness. I have never heard a Merry Christmas more clearly and deeply. 
watching that bird lift and grace into the sunlight, that's how rejoicing in the Lord strikes me. To applaud God's goodness, to praise his kindness, to marvel at his mercy and provision, to be awash with wonder beyond words, to catch our breath, to clutch our hearts, to bend over, really, and be undone by what he's doing on his own perfect, utterly free terms and timing. Rejoice in the Lord. I'm thinking now it's this level of rejoicing, this elevated praise and adoration of the Father. This is how Paul's feeling about the Philippian gift. He says, now at length, you've revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned, but had no opportunity. It's such an empathetic and affectionate thing for him to say. He'll get to it more fully in a few verses later. But he's essentially looking at God and gushing. Did you see what those Philippians did? The gift they gave me? Isn't it amazing? They're still concerned about them, that they're still concerned about the message, about me, that they've been wanting to do something, and now after all this time, your love and your fellowship and the spirit are still burning brightly? How heart-burstingly awful, awesome is that? Paul goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned how to be content whatever the circumstance. I, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether living in plenty or in want. To be content whatever the circumstance Not because I have the immediate power to adjust the circumstance more to my liking. Buy it now with one-click ordering. But because my contentment isn't reliant on the circumstance, this is so contrary to how our culture is arranged. To operate without preference of plenty or want. To move through a day content with what God has already provided or will bring forth in due time. To live on that kind of trust, I've got a long way to go. I do know what it is to be in certain kinds of need, and I hope by now I'm learning the Lord is always and only where that need is met. And I 100% know what it is to have plenty. And I hope by now I'm learning that it all comes from the Father, gift undeserved. But is my baseline, my starting place, my default contentment? Do I wake up in the morning assured of his provision for the day? And do I go to sleep at night grateful for all he did? Move me ever in this direction, Father, ever toward a steady pay, a steady peace born of faith in your goodness. It, it's also interesting that in this short letter where you can't sling a cat and not hit the 16 instances of joy or rejoicing, Paul ends with contentment, which sounds different to me than the active, expressive doing of joy. Contentment, as Paul uses it it here, is not so much a verb as a state, a baseline place from which he meets the world. And I wonder if that contentment that unequivocal, unequivocal peacefulness is the very soul, soil from which his joy grows. If this quiet, 
fearless bedrock is the foundation on which his joy rests. There's nothing that can shake this reality for Paul, not hunger or want, shipwreck or prison, stoning or slander. He's been through it all, and he tells the Philippians, I'm still standing, but only through Christ who strengthens me. Not through his own effort or determination, not through the privileges of Roman citizenship, not, not even through the Philippians' support, but through Jesus alone, his foundation, does Paul find this strong contentment, this contented strength. Contentment is not a place for him after all. It is a person, Jesus Christ. Paul comes back to the gift in 14 through 17. He, he kind of paints the history of how the Philippians have supported them. And, and then in 17, he says this thing, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that you, is that more be credited to your account. Let me read that again. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Peter says, Peterson says in the message, not that I'm looking for handouts, but I do want you to experience the blessing that issues from generosity. Turns out this rejoicing greatly in the Lord that Paul is doing over the Philippian gift isn't about the gift at all. He's rejoicing over their stewardship, their giving and generosity and fruits of the Spirit that are manifested in this offering. This is such a helpful glimpse of Christian affection for me. That we have the option to celebrate the growth and steadfastness, steadfastness of fellow believers. That we can bear witness to one another's discipleship and maturation. That herein lies one of our highest joys. It resonates with the joy I experience when I hear my son Carl, who's now finding his way into adulthood, when I see him demonstrate gratitude towards someone, not like a reflexive, polite thank you. And it doesn't even have to be me, and it's probably, it's usually better when it's not. But this deep gladness I feel for him, that he's aware of another person's generosity and is letting them know it matters, well, move over, great blue heron. I, I do wonder if this notion of rejoicing in one another's growth isn't especially timely for us at Blacknell. As we transition to in-person life together again, as we come back to a really different staff and worship experience and even different versions of ourselves, we've all changed. And I wonder if this slow reunion is an opportunity to train our eyes and our hearts to detect how God has been working in one another, one another over the past 15 months to be expectant and make lots of room for how people have grown, to tune our ears to hear how God has met one another's needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul says, isn't it? My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. How can he say this? Is he appropriately appropriating God's storehouse of blessing? Did Jesus give him this word, this permission? And what did Paul's wild assertion mean for those Philippians who heard it and yet continued to be 
in need. Did it sound like a gloss, like wishful thinking in their needy, hurting ears? It seems like from what we know of his life, Paul's affirmation is based on the data from his own history. He can say this shocking thing, Every need of yours will be met, friends. There is no wanting or broken place in you that God cannot reach. And P.S., there's no short supply on the heaven side. Malachi 3.10 says, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Paul can say this shocking thing because he's lived it. He's known God's provision at every turn, and he's had some rough ones. Even as he wrote this letter, he knew his ex- execution was likely at hand. But, co- but Paul is so confident of God's deliverance, even from death. To die is gain for him, remember. He's so confident that he can say with full integrity that knowing God equals having our needs met. <clears throat> But, it, but isn't this starting to sound a little bit like prosperity gospel? How do we not read it that way? The key, I think, as Tracy so helpfully reminded us a few weeks ago, is to keep this verse situated in the whole sweep of the letter. Paul is decidedly not saying, God is going to meet all of your material and bodily needs because you supported me. And maybe this is why he was so careful not to thank the Philippians directly for the gift. Paul is saying, God is 100% free and 100% able to meet your needs, which he understands better than you do and knows how to address in ways that transcend your circumstances. And because he is altogether good, you can trust him that everything is going to turn out okay in the end. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you, in the way you continue to create beautiful things, including us, in your freedom to show yourself and speak to us in your perfect timing, in your provision for this encouraging glimpse of Paul's friendship with the Philippians. Thank you for this study, for Tana's organizing and leading, for all the women who offered reflections, for our amazing small group led by Hannah and Christy. Thank you for working around and beyond and through our pandemic circumstance to bring us together. And as you promised to join us in our gathering, we love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, friends. Amen.